And I am incredibly excited to have the author of the current number one book on Amazon, not not in a subcategory, not in cultural theory, not in social commentary, <laughs> across all books. He's beating J.K. Rowling, for God's sakes. Uh, Christopher Rufo, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing very well, and I appreciate that clarification. I'm always looking when people say number one bestseller and in, in some obscure category. And so I was actually really shocked to wake up and get messages from my publisher and my agent saying, hey, you're number one uh, on all of Amazon across all categories. Um, uh, obviously a huge honor, very exciting. This is my first book. Um, so it's just unbelievable to to have that kind of distinction. Well, let me put it, let me put it up. This is this is the beauty right here, which I've yet to read. I've perused through it in preparation. I mean, I quickly went through it in preparation for our chat, but I'm hoping to read it soon. Uh let me just introduce you for those of you who who may not know you. This is from your media kit. You're a documentarian. I think you've 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 been part of four films, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor at City Journal. You are a leading activist in the fight against CRT, critical race theory. Your investigative reporting has garnered the attention of President Donald Trump, which led to an executive order banning CRT from being promulgated by federal agencies. You are a repeat guest, maybe the, the, the nicest part in your CV. You are a repeat guest on The Sad Truth, having first appeared in October 2021. I'll put a link to that first appearance in, in our show. And again, the book, Currently number one of all books on Amazon, America's Cultural Revolution, How the Radical Left Conquered Everything. Uh, anything else you want to add to the bio before we get going, Christopher? That sounds great. Yeah, let's uh, dig in. Okay, so uh, what I did notice in, in, in quickly going over your book is that you have broken up into four sections in a sense that capture some of the promulgators of a lot of the nonsense that we're seeing. Maybe you can just start by telling us who those four people are, what their ideologies are, and hence why they've been such troublemakers. Yeah, so the basic structure of the book is to look at America's cultural revolution in four parts. The first part is the theory of revolution itself. And so I profile the new left philosopher Herbert Marcuse, who really laid down the basic ideology for the radical left in the 1960s and early 1970s that continues to this day. Marcuse was really a prophet for the modern left. Um, he was a deeply trained uh, neo-Marxist philosopher, um, uh, part of the uh, uh, Frankfurt School, um, uh, who left uh, Europe uh, prior to World War II, came to the United States. Um, and having dug into his work, I mean, he's really a brilliant man, um, but his philosophy that he so carefully laid out um, yielded disaster in his time, yielded disaster everywhere it's been tried. And I, I really think is currently yielding disaster, as you've seen in recent years with BLM, with the rioting, with the gender movement, with um, all of these various strands of left-wing thinking. The second section is race. And I profile Herbert Marcuse's most famous student, uh, Angela Davis, the uh, famous uh, communist revolutionary, uh, Black Panther Party member, um, and uh, academic uh, radical who was the uh, genesis in many ways for the modern BLM movement. The BLM activists, of course, cite her by name. She's their personal mentor. And all the ideas that you see from BLM really can be easily and directly traced back to Angela Davis. The third is education. I profile um, the Brazilian education theorist, Paulo Freire, and show his 
really vast and remarkable influence over our uh, graduate schools of education, which of course influence how teachers and K through 12 schools um, approach their students. And finally, I look at critical race theory. I spend the last quarter of the book digging into the history of CRT, digging into the ideology, profiling Derek Bell, the godfather of the CRT movement, and showing that if we follow CRT, um, if we make critical race theory into a system of governance, it's going to le lead to really the dismemberment of the American Constitution and the replacement of the American Republic with a system of DEI bureaucrats who redistribute power, wealth, land, uh, and, and prestige according to the bureaucracy, not according to any individual rights or merits. The last gentleman, was he, he was a Harvard professor. So would he have been the guy that, I can't remember if it, is, is he the one that Barack Obama viewed as a mentor? Is, is that the same guy? That's right. Yeah. There's this famous video that came out uh, in the 2012 presidential campaign, Obama's campaign for re-election, that uh, tied him to Derek Bell. He actually uh, was a Harvard Law student at the time. Derek Bell was an engaging in a protest um, against Harvard Law School, which he denounced as a racist and sexist. Um, and Obama very famously gives a speech in defense of Derek Bell, praises Derek Bell, gives a, a nice warm hug to Derek Bell. Um, it actually fell flat during the campaign. Um, it wasn't the line of attack that 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 Republicans had hoped it would be, because critical race theory is very abstract. It's um, uh, it, it, it's very intellectual. It didn't have the immediate resonance or or political punch that might have been required. But it's a really interesting genealogy um, where you have uh, Derek Bell becoming Harvard Law's uh, first uh, full-time African American professor in the late 1960s. He has a radical turn. Um, trained some of his students into a discipline that then became known as critical race theory and had an influence even on the future uh, president of the United States of America. And so CRT is, is, is not the uh, you know, uh, right-wing fantasy that some on the left had claimed it, was, it would be, um, but actually something with a very concrete lineage. It conquered uh, elite institutions, it conquered the graduate schools of education, and then it conquered so many K-12 classrooms around the country. Now, in, in, in your book, you're making the specific point. I mean, there, there, there are real nefarious objectives and goals behind these ideologies, the, you know, an, a frontal attack on Western tradition, Western values. And of course, I, I fully agree with those. And certainly when it comes to Marxism and so on, which are completely antithetical to our way of life. In my, in my previous book, The Parasitic Mind, I take a slightly more charitable position, not to be frivolously charitable, but I argue that many of the idea pathogens, as I call them, really start off not necessarily with nefarious goals. They start off with a noble goal, which then metamorphosizes into nonsense in the pursuit of that noble goal. So for example, equity feminisms, most people would agree with, men and women should be treated equally under the law. But then radical feminists usurp that movement and argue that if we're going to make substantive changes in the dynamics between the sexes, we have to argue that men and women are indistinguishable from each other. There are, there are no biological differences that define male or female. So is there any room in your view for some of these ideologues actually not being the diabolical nefarious folks that we think they are but where they're actually coming from a good place or it's all negative no i mean i think that um you know when you when you when you read through the book and i've had even kind of left-wing critics and left-wing uh people in my orbit who've read the book say wow um 
the analysis, the biographical sketches is, is, is honest, it's compassionate, it's very human. You understand these folks even at points of disagreement in, in, in a real way. And what I tried to do with the book is really first understand these figures as they understood themselves. Um, and of course, they understood themselves as fighting for noble goals. Um, and then the most self-aware of these figures uh, realized in some cases and then became disillusioned with the horrible consequences uh, that emerged from these goals. And so I think the big story in the book, the, the driving, um, the, really the driving structure of all these narratives is the process of idealism being corrupted and then yielding unintended consequences that are really devastating. Um, and so, for example, Paulo Freire, he had a, a noble goal, which was to um, uh, uh, free third world populations from Western imperialism, domination and exploitation, um, and to teach the citizens of these former, formerly colonial countries um, how to read, how to have political consciousness, how to engage in a democratic process. But what you see over the course of his career is that as he worked with these Marxist-Leninist regimes in the third world, in Africa and Latin America in particular, he became a propagandist for a new totalitarianism that was in some cases worse than the colonial regimes that preceded them. They were barbaric, they were torturers, they were killers, they engaged in um, horrific crimes, they looted their own countries. And, and researchers have found that um, his theories of literacy, um, going into a country like Guinea-Bissau on the west coast of Africa, um, they, they, he, they made him the, the leader of their educational efforts, bringing literacy to the masses, bringing literacy to the countrysides and the tribal people of the interior. But some researchers looked into it. They had access to the archives and they found that he actually didn't teach anyone how to read. He was just purely disseminating political propaganda. It didn't work to teach these uh, poor, uh, deprived people even basic literacy, literacy skills. And so the story of the book is the story of idealistic people that had a, an ideology that they thought was going to make the world um, uh, a better place, to transcend the limitations and the oppressions of their time, that had catastrophic unintended consequences. And I think that process of idealism and disillusionment um, is at the heart of left-wing ideologies. It seems that wherever we look, um, the people who follow this logical strand um, that is very appealing on the surface level. There's something inexorable about this process that as it unfolds over time, um, yields these conclusions that are you know, a dramatic reversal from what they intended. Do, do you think that a lot of the ideas that are promulgated by these four folks, and more generally, many of these sort of parasitic ideas, do you think that they are more likely to be stickable or you know or impress young people because of this kind of unicornia utopian vision right and then as we know many people grow out of that sort of that progressivism bent right but all other things equal if i'm 20 years old and i'm at brown university yes i think the world is unfair and i think that marxism is a great way to create equality we'll all hold hands and sing imagine by john lennon so do you think that ultimately many of those ideas that might be intoxicating to me when I'm 20, eventually lose appeal? Like, do we grow out of these ideas or, or not? Yeah, I mean, some of us do. Uh, I know that I certainly <laughs> did. Uh, I mean, oh, I, so I, you, I you started, started off with a, a progressive bent? 
For sure. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, I started off with a very uh, kind of hard left bent. And and when I was in my teenage years and even into into college and um, and then kind of life experience, uh, my own study, my own experience, my own travel, especially um, dissuaded me from that philosophical system because I found that it wasn't compatible with the reality as I really understood it. And but 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 the question that you have is a really good one. And I think that you know, as a, as now as a conservative, I have to concede to to my my friends and opponents on the left that their system of ideas um, has really mastered um, uh, the 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 strategies for tapping into human emotions, human motivation, human inspiration, and they do it on on both poles. They do it on a negative pole um, because they they are really um, just masterful at manipulating the feelings of guilt, envy, resentment hatred, very powerful, dark emotions that guide so much of human behavior. Um, they have a great uh, ability to cast uh, uh, the villain in the story uh, quite persuasively. Um, and then on the positive side, someone like a Marcuse or a Paulo Freire, um, they propose these really um, inspirational, beautiful, utopian concepts. You'll be liberated from your oppressors. Uh, you will find freedom in your life beyond necessity. Um, you will have uh, even um, unrestrained sexuality. Uh, Marcuse was famous for, um, we don't need the superego anymore. Uh, we can have a flowering and totally free sexuality. Um, and so, you know, when you're 20, that sounds great. You have, you know, you don't need to get a job. Uh, you don't need to fit into the system. Uh, you don't need to be uh, um, productive. Um, and, and, and you can have an kind of utterly free um, sexual experience um, uh, at that age. It's like, that sounds great. And, and by the way, you're morally superior to all these other bad people out there that are the ones that are really holding you back. Um, and so, look, I mean, that is a, a very attractive um, narrative for people, especially younger people. Um, but then you, you, you have to then say, all right, great. That's a, a nice promise. But does the promise deliver? And I found that in my own life experience as, as, a, as a human being, in my own study as an intellect, you know, looking at, at, at a wider range of, of reading and materials and arguments, and then in my own observation, the, the actual direct observation of the world, of my ex external world, reality, um, having traveled to many countries in my 20s during my time as a documentary filmmaker, I, I, I concluded this is like, there's absolutely no way that these that this set of ideas, the set of ideas, you know, of course, in the book, the set of ideas more broadly, um, has any chance of conforming with reality in a way that actually leads to true human happiness or human flourishing. One of the things that's remarkable in in your life, and in a sense, I could easily link it to. I have a forthcoming book next week. Forgive the shameless plug on my show. I have a book on happiness, uh, and part of the the joy of life are the serendipitous unexpected moments that happen to us that fall on our lap. And I think, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, I think one of the things that's quite remarkable in your career, I mean, you didn't set out necessarily to be at the place that you are today. Sure, you were interested in in in, in immersing yourself in ideas, but the CRT stuff that came your way was in some sense accidental, right? Where people would send you what's happening with them. So maybe could you trace for us, you know, how you went from wherever you were three, four years ago to today having the number one 
book across all of Amazon? How did that happen? And does it really speak to the magic of serendipity? Yeah, no, I, I mean, it does. Serendipity is is everything. You know, I think in my younger uh, days, in my 20s, I was you know, hyper-focused, hyper-driven, you know, hyper-success oriented. And I planned everything. I made these, you know, these looking back kind of ridiculous plans of this is what I'm going to do in three years, five years. And um, I, I found that that way of thinking and living was so, it could put so much pressure on the self it, and, it, and that it squashes creativity. It squashes your own receptivity to the world, to chance, to friendships, to experiences. And, um, and as I learned to give that up and be open to uh, more experiences, something I can probably still work on today, um, all of these amazing opportunities happen that I think I was ready to, to and curious enough um, to look into. And so moving from the left to the right was based on serendipity, moving from to a career in the documentary film world was based on a chance encounter I had in a grocery store when I was getting ready to graduate from college. Getting into politics was in some ways serendipitous. And then CRT, which really launched me on the trajectory I had today, came from an anonymous tip sent to my uh, email that I was curious about, I followed up on, I reported on, and it led to this a really incredible sequence of events where I was then invited on Tucker Carlson. I then called on President Trump to issue an executive order to abolish CRT. The next morning, I actually get a call from the White House saying that, wow. hey, the president was watching uh, <laughs> Tucker last night. He saw you and he agrees he wants to do an executive order. Can you come, uh, you know, uh, rally with our team, uh, you know, on Zoom? It was during the pandemic and 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 help us craft this order. And then that led to a book deal with HarperCollins. And now we find it on the number one bestseller as it comes out today. Um, you know, and, and all of this is, um, I like to think through my own efforts, through my own talents, through my own, uh, uh, my own you know, uh, capacities. And I think there is that. You have to work hard. You have to have talent. You have to really um, pursue uh, these, the, these opportunities. But a lot of it, and really the genius of our system in the United States of having you know, free enterprise, having uh, individual uh, rights, having a, a free press, having free association you know, with, with some limits, unfortunately, um, it allows for that serendipity to happen yeah. in, 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 as opposed to a planned society, a communist society, a dreary society. And I think that paradoxically, the, the people who, you know, uh, you know, Herbert Marcuse was a prophet of spontaneity. He actually used that exact word over and over in his work. But his philosophy leads to a deadened society that is planned, um, that is that is um, uh, antithetical to the spontaneity that we need in life. And so the liberal system, and there are anti-liberals on the left and the right, but the liberal system at its best um, allows for that spontaneous reaction of ideas and forces and, and material um, that, that, that creates so much of our happiness that is, um, cannot be described in, in rational terms and it cannot be planned through rational means. Well, it, one of the things that I talk about in my forthcoming book when I'm discussing the, what I consider to be the, most, the two most important decisions that uh, can either impart great misery on an individual or great happiness is the following two choices, choosing the right spouse and choosing the right profession. Now, when it comes to choosing the right profession, I argue that all other things equal, the professions that are most likely to impart the greatest amount of purpose and meaning 
are ones that allow you to instantiate yourself within the creative impulse. Now, the creative impulse could be, I'm a chef, therefore I create new dishes that before I put my hands on them did not exist on that plate. It could be creating as, as an architect, I create you know all kinds of monuments, bridges, buildings. I can create as a filmmaker, as you did. I can create as a professor in my scientific work. I can create as an author. I can create as a podcaster. So do you feel that a lot of the serendipitous uh, moments that have allowed you to have the trajectory that has led you to where you are today stems specifically in your case also from being someone who has to constantly be immersed within the creative impulse? Yeah, it, it, it's it's interesting though. For for me, there's there's a bit of a wrinkle to the story. I mean, first of all, I, I think that the choice of a spouse and a family is is number one. I think that's the most important uh, decision related to happiness. And uh, I'm very fortunate to have a, a, an incredible spouse and and three incredible kids. And you know, even when things are tough or stressful at work, you know, you go home and you reconnect with your family or spend the weekend together, and it's just you know the best. It doesn't doesn't beat that. But actually, in my career as a filmmaker, I was very unhappy for many years. Um, uh, I felt very frustrated. I felt like um, uh, the, the medium was not quite right. And I'm still not even really sure how to describe it or why that is. But um, I felt a restlessness. And then I felt like I was forcing myself to do it by the end. And, and fortunately, made the decision to shift into writing, reporting, politics, you know, then writing a book, which is much more suitable to me. So I think that there's also some specificity. So I, I mean, I'm a creative person, I, you know, in the arts, documentary, filmmaking, writing. Um, I work with photographers, video editors, you know, graphic designers. Um, that is the, you know, the bulk of my day, the bulk of my week. But there's also a, a specificity that you need to have, you know, creative, the creative enterprise that for whatever reason uh, kind of conforms or fits within your own, your own pattern, your own, um, way of thinking, your own skills and talents. And so um, I think I finally tapped into that. And I think really this book is um, the best creative product I've ever done by far. The one that has provided me the most satisfaction. Um, and, you know, on Sunday, the, the day before we were started media for the book launch, I was talking with my wife. I was started to feel anxious for the first time about the book. So, oh my gosh, this book is coming out. I've never published a book. I, I don't know how it's going to perform. I got this, you know, large advance from my publisher. I don't want him to be disappointed in, in the book and uh, kind of thinking about how the public's going to react. And, and she said something very interesting. She says, examine how you feel about the book. You've come a long way. You found your medium. You've put everything into it. You didn't leave any stone unturned. You tried uh, 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 to the greatest of your efforts. It's in print with a publisher. Um, uh, um, you've done everything you can. You're going to do all the media that you can to promote it. Um, and now you have to let go. Um, and, and I felt, you know, then kind of the anxiety dissipate and said, yeah, you know, this is my creativity is now done. Um, this is what I've produced. This is what I've created. And it's up to other people, whether, how they respond. And then as soon as I stopped caring about the result, then I get a text from my agent and my publisher <laughs> saying, you're number one. And so it's kind of a, uh, you know, it's a paradox, right? Creativity is about effort and, and, and strenuous exertion, but then also about openness, receptivity, and letting go. Um, it's a, you know, I don't know. It's a, it, it, you almost think that if you analyze it too much, you might lose it. Um, but it's such a mystery. It's such a, a, a 
fascinating process um, and, and you know, something that, that you have deep experience with. I'd be curious to hear your, your, your take. Well, thank you for asking. Uh, I remember when my first book came out, this was a, an academic book, meaning it, it wasn't a trade book. It was, you know, it, it would certainly won't, wouldn't have been read by, you know, many, many hundreds of thousands of people. It's this book right here, The Evolutionary Basis of Consumption. And I remember that once I had finished it, I had something that I think would be an accurate analogy, something akin to a postpartum depression. Because as as you know now, Christopher, having having given birth to this book, uh, this big intellectual baby, uh, you you you've been so focused. You went off into this cave where you opened your laptop with not a single syllable having been struck at one point. There was a point a, a year ago where you, you didn't have a word. And then a year later, you've got this complete narrative. It goes off to your publisher. And now you say, you start twiddling your thumbs. That's it. What's going to happen? So I wasn't even thinking at that point about whether it'll be successful or not. And luckily for an academic book, it was, you know, it was very successful. And of course I've written many books since, uh, but I really felt the blues. So yeah. I'm at, so before I, I add anything else, uh, are you feeling a bit of that or is, are things moving so quickly, especially with its success that you haven't had a chance to even process any of the postpartum part? Yeah. I, you know, I felt the, that, that, that postpartum uh, uh, depression with some of my film projects uh, interesting. Um, and, 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 and my early work. And, and I think that it, looking back, I, it stems from this gnawing feeling that working on these films, you know, I, I were and they were broadcast on PBS. They went to film festivals. One of them went to Netflix and by some objective measures, you could say that they were successful. They kind of reached an audience in some way, but I had this gnawing feeling that maybe I didn't even quite understand at the time that, oh, I put all this into it. I feel there's some anxiety. There's some, there's some kind of, kind of turmoil inside. And, and, and the, 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 the reason for that looking back was that it's like, does this matter? You know, I put all this effort in this film. I raised money. We worked, you know, for years on these, this thing it's out there in the world It broadcasts on TV. Um, but is it making any dent in the world? Is it having any impact on people? And I had this gnawing suspicion that the answer was probably no. Um, and, and, and that probably generated some of those negative feelings with the book. I think that, um, I haven't felt any of that at all. I think partially because the medium is really suitable to me. I loved writing the book. I loved doing the research. I loved uh, working on the edits with the editors and publishers and designing the cover um, and doing all of that work. And then I had this sense of ease when it was done and kind of let go, didn't think about it. Um, and now I have a, a, a real sense, a, a tangible sense that this book, it matters. Um, it, it's important to people, um, not just because it's, you know, kind of climbed up the charts to, to number one by the release date, but also because I know that um, the, the story that I'm telling in this book, the story of the radical left's long march to the institutions um, is going to help so many people that are struggling right now, looking around at their communities and seeing that their university, their children's school, um, their local government, their, uh, you know, the media that they read is saturated with these really insidious ideologies. And I know that it's going to give so many people like that who are wondering, 
what the hell happened in 2020? How, how is it that all of our institutions are suddenly deranged? Um, I know that it's going to provide them with some deep answers. And so I think that I've escaped that feeling so far. Maybe when the flurry of activity ends, maybe it'll set in. Um, but, uh, but, but for the time being, um, um, it's great. It's, it's such a good feeling. And I'm so excited to share it with people. And, and I can promise you, and certainly given the, the reception that your book has received so far, that the, the positivity wave is going to go on for, for, for the foreseeable future. There's almost nothing as rewarding to me as when I receive a photo of someone sitting at a beach with a copy of my book, and then they tag me. Uh, and it actually comes from a very humble place because the, the, the reaction that I get is that person who's going to the beach could have chosen one million different things to do, let alone a million different books to read at the beach. And yet they chose mine and they're enjoying it. And so I predict that, I mean, of course, number one, that's a great metric of the fact that it's successful, but I think it's the personal cues that you will receive from people. It's those emails where someone says, I started off as a Brown University, you know, unicornia leftist, and then your book brought me to my senses. So I expect that you're going to have a tsunami of good feelings uh, moving forward. And that's that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. No, I 100% agree. And, and it's really, it's like a miraculous feeling. You say, wow. I mean, what an honor that you people know. are spending their time. And okay, you go on TV, you do a three-minute news piece, and, it, and it's exciting. And maybe you get some emails. Hey, I saw you on, on, on Fox last night. Great job. But for someone to invest the hours and hours it takes to read a book is a commitment. I mean, it, it, it really is a, a commitment to the author, a, a, a tremendous honor to the author, a sign of respect to the author. And um, it's something that none of us, you know, innately deserve, right? I mean, it's like people can choose to do anything that they want. And, right. and to have people choose to, to, to do that, to read the book, commit to the book, um, enjoy the book, let themselves be reached by the book. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm so excited and I'm starting to get that trickling in. I sent the book out in advanced copies to a number of people and I'm starting to get feedback from my peers, uh, people in politics, people in, in, in the media world. And, uh, and, and it's, you know, these are all people that have busy schedules and some of them it's like, wow, I'm so honored that you read the book, you yeah. love it, you understand it, you appreciate it. And so I, I, I take none of it for granted. I, I'm still kind of, you know, in a state of astonishment um and uh and and gratitude yeah i mean it really is a a grateful feeling um do, and do you, uh, i love it do you think so this is something that i actually faced with my last book and i'm hoping to not have to face with the happiness book and that is that look the the happiness book is a universal theme that should be read by anybody irrespective of their political persuasion but when it came to the parasitic mind or when it came to your current book right here you expect that people who share your vision of the world might be the ones who consume it. Whereas what you want really from a pragmatic perspective is to get the, the, the folks in, on CNN, the folks you know on MSNBC to be saying, oh, let me check this out and let's see if he's got arguments. Uh, now, I can speak for myself. Regrettably, I, I wasn't able to get on a lot of the shows where the parasitic mind would have had the most influence because- Otherwise, I'm preaching to the converted people who say, "Yeah, yeah, of course, I agree with Professor Sad." It, 
do you worry about that? And did you take specific steps to be able to convince those that need to be convinced in reading this book? Yeah, I have a, two answers to that. You know, one is a more strategic and political answer. And the lesson that I've learned in the recent years of political activism that I've done that has been successful, it's influenced a presidential order, legislation in 22 states. Um, we reformed the curriculum on CRT. We abolished a gender ideology in, in, in states. Um, just this year, I've worked, uh, led a campaign to uh, abolish the DEI bureaucracy in public universities successfully so far in Florida and Texas. Um, and so as far as actual influence, the lesson that I've learned is that preaching to the choir is actually the best and most important and most effective uh, means of influence. Um, and it really is the whole game. You have to actually reach people that are most likely to um, uh, at the marginal kind of at the marginal way, right? The, 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 the lowest cost for, for influence. You have to engage those people first and then go out in concentric circles. And, and in some ways, um, you don't actually have to you know, persuade your deepest opponents. You have to defeat, uh, uh, defeat them in the public square in the political process. That said, uh, I love doing opposition media. I love going on CNN and MSNBC and NPR and the New York Times and Jacobin and, and wherever else. And I'm really working hard and my team, both with me and also at, at HarperCollins, the publisher, um, we're, 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 we're trying, you know, we're, we keep reaching out to people. We're trying to engage, we're trying to persuade. I'm offering to do any interviews. And, and I said, look, any, any, any kind of left-leaning media, you know, Book my time. I'm open. I will come on your show. I'll debate. I'll let you criticize me. I'll let you yell at me. You know, if if you're so outraged by what I'm writing, um, and 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 so far we've had limited success. And I just find it to be such a disappointing moment in our political culture, where, uh, you know, even when I was younger, kind of during the Bush years, still on the left, and then kind of on the right towards the end of that um, uh, period. Uh, in the early Obama years, you still had programs, you know, very famously the CNN crossfire kind of yeah. format where you had people on left and right and they were always debating. That's where is that? Why don't we have that anymore? Um, I, I just find it so engaging um, to, to debate. It sharpens me. It sharpens my opponent. It creates a higher sense of stakes. Um, it allows people to 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 hear two arguments side by side and make their own uh, make their own uh, minds up, and I think it does engage in that work of persuasion. Um, so, I'm sure you're like me in in the sense that it's it's such a disappointment that we don't have that, and I'm trying to revive it. We'll see if we can do that over the next two to three weeks. Um, if we can, we can. Um, but if we can't, we can't. Ultimately, it's up to them. Um, you know, I'm open to it, and uh, we'll see how how my, uh, my my critics respond. I, I think if I can offer you a, a compliment, you, you, you walk the nice balance between having the honey badger hood that I talk about in the parasitic mind, right? When I ask people, please activate your inner honey badger. So you've got the capacity to be punchy and combative and so on. But I think there is a personal style, right? So for example, the fact that you smile and don't appear sullen already softens any combative positions that you take. So I think from many of the people that I can see being able to speak to those on the opposite you know, end of the political aisle, 
you've got the unique set of skills of being a honey badger, yet being a friendly honey badger that would hopefully allow you to speak to the folks that are in Looney Land. Yeah, you 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 have to. You have to have both. And and I think it's, you know, perhaps stems from a, a psychological quirk that I have is that I, I love politics. I love the fight. I love the scrum. I love the muckraking. Um, I love the debate. I I, I just and, and and I think I have, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. It's like I have no hatreds for, you know, for yeah, I mean, even the characters in the book, as we talked about, it's like, oh, man. Uh, Richard Hanania the, the, recently wrote a review and he said, oh man, I, I came away from reading the book just hating the, the figures in the book. And to me, it was very surprising. And, and I said, I thought to myself, huh, that's interesting. I spent a lot of time reading and thinking about these people. Their political opinions, I think, have yielded disaster, but I don't have a personal sense of hatred or disgust. I have kind of, certainly, I think, a rational appraisal of their records, but I also try to understand them as human beings and try to be able to connect with them in, in that way, first and foremost. And so, you know, even people who have been really outright nasty with me or, or, or unfair with me, um, I can kind of let it go. Um, I, I don't take it personally. I know who I am. I know what I believe. I know what I'm fighting for. Um, and, 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 and consequently, I think that I don't let anyone impose their image of me uh, into my own consciousness, into my own um, uh, self-definition. And so it kind of just falls off and I can have fun with it. I can engage with it. I can play with it. I can subvert it. I can redirect it um, um, without it stinging, um, without it um, influencing me. And so I, I think that you try to bring a sense of joy or happiness or fun to it and if you are a kind of per the kind of person who gets angry morose taciturn um uh, uh, uh righteous you know self-righteous um you know politics can chew you up i mean you see it destroy people um and i and i find that so unfortunate and i don't think that temperamentally it's for everyone well i love that you use the words a play with it and then use joy because, uh, well, as you know, I think you you have a sense of my public engagement. One of the things that perhaps separates me from a lot of other professors is other than, of course, being able to be serious and austere and professorial if I go speak at Stanford, I'm also incredibly playful. I use satire. I wear the the pink wig to try to mock, you know, the the woke folks. I self-flagellate and 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 faux self-loathing. And people say, how do you pull it off? Well, it's because I immerse myself as a life motto. And I, I talk about this in, in, in my forthcoming book on happiness. I call it life as a playground, right? So even when we pursue very serious things, like in my case, let's say my scientific career, I view science as a as the highest form of play, right? Because what are you doing when you're engaging in science? You're taking a bunch of variables. There's this big puzzle of nature. And let's see which which piece of the puzzle goes with which other piece, right? So in the same way that you try to complete a 1,000-piece puzzle, that's what science is. So even when we are engaging people on social media and being punchy and being a bit spicy, it at least for myself, there's always a twinkle in my eye. I'm always playful. I never... Uh, and that's why I sometimes get frustrated when people end up taking it personally, as has happened with 
some public figures that I used to be friends with are no longer friends with. I never intend to, I never go out to hurt someone or to truly demean them. It's all part of, as you said, an exchange of ideas. Once in a while, I use humor, satire, sarcasm. And I think that's been very, very, uh, uh, in, you know, persuasive as a strategy to use. Oftentimes when I get approached by people on the street, they'll actually refer to my comedy routine more than to my actual cerebral work. Comedy works. <laughs> what are your thoughts? Yeah, I know. Comedy absolutely works. And, uh, and I think it's magnetic in its appeal. It draws people in. It makes them laugh. It exposes uh, an uncomfortable truth or, or, or crosses a taboo um, in a way that you can only do through comedy. And, uh, and I think, you know, comedy is, is really one of the highest uh, forms of, of, of art, of life, of expression. And, and I think perhaps uh, maybe you are, and, and, and I am as well, uh, as, a, as a good Italian, kind of Mediterranean in, the, in, in this approach. You know, if you look at the, 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 the Greeks had a kind of systematic, beautiful expression of comedy, uh, you know, many, many uh, centuries ago. Um, you know, the Romans may be a little less funny as it tra traveled uh, uh, westward, but, you know, in, to this day in, in Mediterranean cultures, I mean, if you talk about a group of men coming together from anywhere in the Mediterranean, they rib each other, they roast each other, they destroy each other. I mean, my dad and his Italian friends would just constantly mock each other for where they were from, for what their accents were. I mean, and it was all in good humor and it was all a way of connecting beyond those differences. Um, and so I think we may be more comfortable with that, whereas the kind of woke Anglo Protestant culture is a bit more cold. It's a bit more northern. It's a bit more dour. Um, they, they they can't handle the uh, the mockery and the uh, and the 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 kind of clever play with that. And so we're fighting against that as good Mediterraneans. Um, but but I think ultimately um, even those you know, G Germans and Scandinavians and, and Anglos, um, they like the humor at the end of the day. I think that they, they can't resist it. And so I think we have to we have to bring them over further. And I would like to see a society um, where kind of there's more latitude in what we can talk about, joke about, mock and engage. Um, and so I, I think that's why people like it. It also demonstrates in a paradoxical way, courage. Yes, um, if you're willing to, to be funny, truly funny, you actually have to have some courage. Uh, and so so I think that's what people really appreciate about it deep down. And self-deprecating humor is the ultimate form of courage and confidence, right? Because when that's you right. turn the yeah. humor inwards, that actually is paradoxically saying, I'm really confident in my skin and my personhood that I can make fun of myself, you know? Uh, yeah. Okay, well, I know earlier we talked about serendipity, so I don't know if my next question fits under that mold or it fits under the kind of a priori I'm thinking about the future. But do you ever foresee, now don't don't get coy if you have an answer, do you ever foresee going into politics right now? You've been a filmmaker, you've been a writer, or you are a writer, a very successful one, it turns out, uh, on day one, starting from the blocks. Could you ever say, you know what, I'm I'm tired of just being in the cerebral world I want to be the top dog of change. I want to get into the race or you don't ever foresee that. No, I, I don't actually. And when I first started getting in politics, I was living in Seattle and my neighbors persuaded me to, to try to run for city council. And it was, um, it turned out to be kind of a disaster, honestly. It, it, you know, I, I didn't understand politics. I didn't understand the dynamics of the city. 
Um, I really got a kind of brutal lesson uh, in bare knuckle politics in Seattle. I ended up just saying, this is not for me. I, I dropped the candidacy. I ended the campaign um, just not too long after it started. And it was a humbling moment, um, uh, a humiliating moment in some ways, you know, uh, the, the kind of radical lefties, you know, ran circles around me and, 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 and gave me a quite a, 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 a quite a showing. So two lessons from that. One is that some of those failures and uh, humbling moments are, are, are create these serendipitous opportunities. And actually that was really one of the best things that happened to me. I splashed into politics. I made these great relationships. It led me on this path to more journalism and think tank work. Um, I learned like, you know, a crash course and how politics really works, um, how power politics works, how media politics works. And I think that everything that I've learned that has been successful in the last few years, I learned in that really awful six week period uh, in running in, in Seattle politics. Um, but the other lesson that I learned is that everyone is suited for a specific form, a specific method. Um, and the actual running for political office, um, I, I have like so much respect for anyone who does it. And, and all the politicians that I work with, whether it's the president of the United States or Governor DeSantis, with whom I've worked closely, uh, state legislators that I'm in communication with constantly. I, I'm, I'm in awe of how difficult their job is. Um, I, I have no cynicism towards politicians at all. I have a deep respect toward, for what they do. It's a very complex, very difficult position, requires a lot of self-sacrifice. Um, and it's really just not for me. And so I think that my greatest influence, um, my greatest personal happiness, and then the the really what I'm made for, you know, what I'm built for um, is doing the journalism, think tank work, reporting, short filmmaking, book writing, um, running this kind of creative studio that, that I'm that I'm that I'm running and then working with and and actually serving um, uh, the political leaders that are doing the really the really hard work of, of statesmanship, vote getting you know, uh, baby kissing, uh, handholding, or in Joe Biden's case, you know, baby hair sniffing and fondling. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, and so I, I think that it's like a symbiotic relationship, not a parasitic relationship. <laughs> um, and, and, and I love I love working with these guys. And I, I find it so bizarre. A lot of people, even in think tank world or political media, they constantly bitch about politicians and, oh, these people are awful, uniparty, these guys are the worst. And it's like, what are you doing? These people have a much harder job than we do. These people are really putting themselves out there. And yeah, are they, you know, playing to the crowd? Are they maybe not courageous in all fronts? But help them, inform them, persuade them, lead them, uh, give them the tools that they need. And so I see my work um, in the political sphere as, 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 as one of being um, helpful and providing intellectual leadership. We have great guys that can run for office. But what I think we lack, especially on the political right, is the visionary intellectual leadership that can inform the political work um, uh, uh, in, in a substantive way. And so that's that's really where I see myself as most successful. Got you. Two last questions, and then you'll stay for happiness questions for our subscribers. Uh, question one, since we're talking about politics, do you care to weigh in at all in terms of who, whether you want to make a prediction or give your thoughts as to who do you? How do you see the GOP primary unfolding for the twenty twenty four election? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't really make predictions. Uh, uh, I'm not a 
kind of horse race analyst. Uh, I, I don't have any special insight into that kind of work, but um, you know, I can say absolutely that uh, you know I've publicly supported Governor DeSantis. I've worked with the governor on critical race theory, gender ideology. Um, you know, the 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 fight with Walt Disney, and then the uh, DEI uh, reform in public universities, um, and. You know, in that time over the last couple of years of really getting to know him, observing him closely, watching how he works, watching how he delegates to his team, um, I, I think he is far and away the best equipped uh, of the Republican political leaders to lead the country in the right direction, to have the competence and self-discipline of, of leading a presidential administration, and just having the vision and the courage, not only to uh, say the right thing, but to actually get the right thing done. And uh, I mean, he is a really extraordinary person. He has uh, intellectual gifts. He has um, uh, rhetorical gifts. He has a gift for leadership and management. The team around him is just incredibly impressive. Um, and so uh, I, I just I, I'd love to see him um, in the White House. I'd love to see him in the Oval Office. I, I'm doing, uh, you know, whatever I can. Um, as a as a as a, uh, a think tank scholar to provide him with policy ideas, um, and certainly in my role as in private in my private capacity and my non think tank work, my non non nonprofit work, um, you know to support what he's doing. And so um, that said, he's going to have a hell of a challenge. He's going up against uh, Donald Trump, who uh, you know whatever you think about him has an unbelievable ability to just wipe the board uh, to, to to kind of clear out anyone that's standing in his way. And so we'll see. This is going to be a, a test of, of titans, uh, perhaps, in the coming months. And while so many of my colleagues are dreading the conflict, they're dreading the confrontation, I, I'm relishing it. I'm, I'm enjoying it. I can't wait for them to actually get on the debate stage, to go mano a mano. Um, and, and, and we'll see what, what voters decide to do. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and you've been in, traveling in Florida quite a bit. Um, I mean, it's just a great state, and uh, and and his leadership has really been tremendous. It is. Speaking of Florida, last question, then we'll we'll do the happiness extra additional question. Uh, I know, as an academic, uh, my ears perked up when I heard about this new uh, college of Florida that was instituting all kinds of you know classical liberal ideas, you know anti woke stuff. I know you are on the advisory board or board of governors. Uh, could you take maybe a minute or two to tell us about some of the exciting things happening with that institution? Yeah, absolutely. In January, um, Governor DeSantis appointed me, along with a number, a number of other conservative reformers, uh, as a new uh, trustee majority on the board of trustees for the new College of Florida. It's a small public liberal arts college that had become really a social justice ghetto. Um, it had a reputation as the lowest performing and the most woke uh, uh, university in the system. And DeSantis said, you know, we're not going to shut it down, although many legislators are trying to shut it down because it's just a, a, a disaster. We're going to actually take it over and reform it. So we came in, uh, we fired the president, uh, we brought in a very tough, classical education uh, 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 minded person named Richard Corcoran, who also has immense political skills. He's been uh, involved in Florida politics for many years. Um, we, uh, you know, the, the provost resigned. Uh, uh, she was, you know, gone. I had gotten in a confrontation from her. She was trying to shut down a speech uh, by me, the trustee. Uh, that's not going to fly. We're not going to do that. So uh, she made a, a thankfully made a, a, a quick exit. 
Uh, we abolished the DEI department. We set the DEI director packing. Um, uh, she was fired and 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 uh, and 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 dispatched in, in short order. Um, we now have um, you know many of the professors who are the most hardcore woke, who are the most hardcore gender ideologues, who really were were hating this turn towards the classical liberal arts and having open expression. Um, they have all you know most of them, many of them have self-selected out. They've resigned. They or they had their contracts weren't renewed or or they've you know taken up positions elsewhere. They've self-selected out because. They don't want to have that open debate. They don't want to have civil discourse. They don't want to have a classical liberal arts institution. They want to have nonstop, you know, gender mania and 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 uh, you know, left wing social theory. And we're bringing in now, um, hopefully, you know, thirty new uh, uh, academics, professors committed to a classical liberal arts frame. There's going to be debate, of course, with them, but they believe in uh, uh, the mission of the classical liberal arts, and so. Um, this is going to be an exciting thing. We were actually just announced that we have a record incoming class. We've recruited more students wow. for our freshman year than any time in the college's history. Um, it, 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 and, and, we, and we entered this late in the cycle. Um, we really didn't get started till uh, February, March. And so we're going to expand the university. We have $50 million of new cash from the legislature. We have the biggest budget in the university's history, the best finances. We're bringing in record number of professors, record number of students. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to um, entice uh, many people, uh, in, including you, to consider uh, talking with the university and, and looking at it as, as a potential home, because what we're trying to do is something very simple. Um, we want to have all of those academics who are brilliant, accomplished, and that, but they're under siege by the DEI, by the wokes, by the students mobbing them. They don't feel protected. They don't feel supported. We want to be the new home for that. And actually, we're hoping to put together a new uh, institute within the university um, with a number of very high profile people from top tier universities to develop policies to actually protect open discourse and civil debate on campus. We want to be a hub for that, not just at New College, but in many places. And so um, this is exciting. And, and, and for those of us um, that have been so dismayed by the kind of left wing ideological capture of our institutions, we're creating a prototype for recapturing, reforming, and reconstituting those institutions on the basis of the classical liberal arts. Incredibly exciting. Guys, the number one book on Amazon as we speak. Go get it. Do the right thing. Christopher, what a pleasure to speak to you. Uh, I think this is the, the least of a superstar you'll ever be. You already are one, but you are going to be catapulted into the stratosphere, my good man. Great job. Congratulations on the success That's of the book. That's very kind of you. Thank you so much. Cheers. And stay on the line for uh, an additional question to our subscribers. Thanks. Okay, great.